And let's take our Bibles and we'll turn to John's Gospel, uh, chapter 20, one of the passages that we read earlier today. Our focus this morning is primarily on verses 30 and 31. As you know, as you've already heard, if you've been here this summer, uh, this message is the final message in a series we've been doing this summer on the miraculous signs of Jesus. And so today we conclude this series, and uh, in these verses, the Apostle John, these verses have been referred to throughout this series, throughout the summer, but here the Apostle John um, essentially summarizes the very reason why he wrote the Gospel of John. Jesus did many other miraculous signs, verse 30, in the presence of his disciples. I believe, guys, we have that verse that can go up on the screen. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, or is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Today we're going to do something a little different from what we normally do in a worship service. Today, because this is the final day of a series that has gone throughout the summer, because you have heard message after message this summer on each of the miraculous signs, today we're going to do exactly what John says here in verse 31, that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah. In other words, today I'm going to invite you to make a decision to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you perhaps have been staying in a state of of unbelief for a period of time or a lack of assurance or you're not sure about Jesus, but you have come here for whatever reason and you've been hearing these messages or someone has spoken to you about the Lord and, 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 and you have some curiosity about him. You, you're inquiring concerning him. You're seeking after him perhaps. Today I'm going to ask you to make a decision for Jesus Christ. Today at the conclusion of our worship, I'm going to invite you. I'm going to invite you to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Today is a decision day. I'm going to ask you to make a decision to act on faith and to believe in Christ as your Savior and Lord. I'm doing that because that's exactly what this verse says, that these signs have been written, the Gospel of John was written, so that we might believe. In other words, John wrote the Gospel with the intent that his readers would believe. So we who have been reading his Gospel throughout this summer, my intent this morning is that you might believe to bring you across the line from a state of confusion or perhaps curiosity or interest to a point of solid faith in Jesus. So to do that today, we're first of all going to review a number of different things. And there are seven things that I want to say to you about the seven signs of the Lord Jesus. And the first is that John wrote a gospel about Jesus. Of course, we know that already. We are in the gospel of John. But I want to just take a couple of moments here just to review some things for us, because some of us may have forgotten, perhaps, some of the things that have been said uh, throughout the course of this summer. John, the apostle, wrote a gospel about Jesus. So who was John? Well, we know he was one of the disciples of the Lord Jesus. And if you go to chapter 1 in the gospel of John, uh, Jesus comes to a group of fishermen who were on the shores of the Sea of Galilee at that time, 
and he calls them to follow him. And John, John doesn't mention his name there, but he refers to two disciples of John the baptizer who went over to Jesus and started to follow him. And it is believed that John was one of those two who responded. John in the gospel refers to himself a number of times, though he never gives his name. You know how he refers to himself? On two occasions, he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's an interesting phrase because Jesus loved all of them. But for John, he seems to have been a very emotional person. And for him, he was so overwhelmed and so overcome by the fact that Jesus would love him. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was a part of an inner circle. Jesus had 12. Actually, there were 70 or 72. But then there was a smaller group of 12 who became his apostles. But among the apostles, there was an inner circle, an inner circle of three. And John was one of those three. John, in chapter 19 of his gospel, tells us that he was actually at the cross when Jesus was crucified. You know who he was standing beside? Witnessing the horrific event? It was Mary, the mother of Jesus. And at the cross, Jesus spoke out and he said to his mother, he said, dear woman, behold your son, looking at John. Not at himself, but at John. And then he looked at John and he said, behold your mother. And John tells us that from that moment on, he took Mary into his house and he cared for her. So Jesus entrusted Mary, his mother, into the hands of the Apostle John. He became an apostle. He was an eyewitness of, of everything that Jesus had done. For three and a half years, he walked with the Lord Jesus, and he's an old man now. And he writes for us a gospel. So what is a gospel? Well, we use the word gospel in a number of different ways. It essentially means good news. But in the sense of writing a gospel, it, it means that it's, it's a brief account of the good news. It's a brief historical record of the good news of Jesus Christ. There are four gospels, four accounts, as it were, of the life of the Lord Jesus. And they're all very, very brief. You could sit down and read them all in a day if you wanted to. In John, there's only 21 Chap, 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 chapters in his gospel. If you took one chapter a day, you'd finish the gospel in three weeks. Each one of the gospels, the gospel writer had a purpose. So there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and, and Matthew had a purpose in writing his gospel to us. He was actually addressing the Jews, and he wanted the Jews to understand that, that Jesus was the descendant of David, that he is the fulfillment of all of the promises that were made to King David in the past, and that Jesus would finally sit on the throne of David. He is the king. Mark comes at his gospel from a different angle. Mark wants us to understand that Jesus fulfilled all of the prophecies of Isaiah, because Isaiah spoke of a suffering servant, one who would come, who would give his life, who would die for the sins of his people, who would make an atonement through his blood. And so all through Mark, we, we get this picture of Jesus as this servant. And the key verse in the Gospel of Mark is, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
Luke, and all of them were the same, and a lot of their messages overlap, but, but Luke had a different purpose in writing. Luke wanted us to understand that Jesus is not just the Savior of Israel, not just the Savior of the Jews, but that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And so when you read Luke, there's, there's so much more in there about people who are disenfranchised, who are out of the covenant relationship with God, but Christ came for them as well, the disenfranchised. And then John was the last one to write his gospel. He probably wrote it around 70 to 75 years after Christ, 75 AD. John was an old man at this, at this point in time. And, and his gospel, friends, is very different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Because John begins his gospel, not with the birth of Jesus. John begins his gospel by going all the way back in time before the birth of Jesus. And he says that in the beginning was the Word, and he identifies the Word as Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning through him all things have been made. Without him, nothing has been made that has been made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. He goes right back, as it were, to the beginning, to creation itself, and says that Jesus was there. And then John says, and he dwelt among us. He took human flesh. He became a human being. And we've seen his glory, the glory of the only one, the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. So John wrote a gospel. The next thing I want you to see here is that in this verse, in verse 30 and 31, John called Jesus' miracles signs. Now, we talked about this already this summer, but I want to just focus on this word again for just a moment. Notice what he says, verse 30, Jesus did many other Signs. Some translations add the word miraculous, miraculous signs. Notice he doesn't say the word John did many miracles or John did acts or Jesus did acts of power. He says Jesus did many other miraculous signs. So there are many different words to describe what a miracle is. A miracle, we know, is a direct and powerful act of God. The thing that's different about a miracle in terms of how God normally works is that a miracle transcends the laws of nature itself. A miracle goes against the law of nature. A miracle is supernatural. And so the Bible uses different words to describe this. Miracle is used. Powers or acts of power is a phrase that is often used. Some, sometimes they're referred to as wonders because when a miracle happens, everyone is gasping. Like they, they want, they're in wonder. They're in awe of what is taking place. But one of the words is signs, and this is John's favorite word. Now, why would John use this word? You see, John wants us to understand that the, the miracles of Jesus were not just simply naked displays of power. Jesus isn't some magician who is, who is just conjuring up tricks to impress people. These are signs. These are significant displays of power. And the point of a sign is that a, point of, is that a sign points beyond itself. It's not the sign that really matters. It's the truth behind the sign. It's the deeper reality that's being communicated in the sign. 
And the purpose of the sign is, is to direct you to a destination. It's to point you in the right way. It's to lead you into truth. There's always a destination with a sign. And John says the destination here is that you might believe. And John also reveals that, that through the signs, Jesus revealed his glory. He showed himself as, as no other human being is or was. John called Jesus' miracle signs. The next thing I want you to see is that according to what he says here, John selected several of these signs. Notice, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not, they're not recorded in this book. But these are written. These signs, spe specifically seven signs, right up until John chapter 11. Seven signs. These seven signs are written that you may believe. I didn't know this until just recently in my reading. I've just taken for granted that there were hundreds of miraculous signs that are recorded about Jesus. But if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John through, you discover that there are only about 40 signs of Jesus that are recorded. 40 miracles that Jesus did. Now, John says here, Jesus did many, accurate, many other miraculous signs, which are not recorded in this book. So we might think, okay, the rest of them are in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But, but actually, there were, any, there were actually more than that. Because if you go over to chapter 21, look at chapter 21, verse 25. John 21, verse 25. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Do you realize that it's possible that Jesus may have performed seven signs in one day? It's possible that of the 40 recorded miracles of Jesus, he may have actually done more than 40 miracles in one day. You see, what we have in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this record, is a condensed record. It's, it's, it's not the full history, essentially, is what John is saying. And John is thinking to himself, okay, I'm going to write a gospel. And, and I want people to believe. Now, I want to I I talk about some of the miracles that Jesus did, but which ones should I choose? And so he goes back. And he starts to think. He's an eyewitness of everything that happened. He's an old man now. He's recalling in his memory everything that happened in those three and a half years when he walked with Jesus. And he says, I, I can't say everything that I want to say. This is not an exhaustive history of Jesus. But I will choose some of the things that Jesus did to prove my point. And so he chose seven. And these seven stand out. These seven stand out, and they have great impact. Do you remember the signs? What was the first sign? Water into wine. He turned the water into wine, recorded in John chapter 2. He's at a wedding at Cana. It appears that Jesus and his family would have known who was being married because Mary is there, and she seems to have a significant role to play at Cana in the wedding because she's concerned about the fact that they run out of wine. She goes to, to Jesus and, and asks Jesus to intervene. And you remember what happened. There were six large jars. Now, we say large jars. They were jars that could hold up to 30 gallons of water. That's 115 liters of water each jar. 
They've run out of wine. It's an embarrassing situation for sure. And Jesus transforms the substance of water into wine. This is where you get the word transubstantiation. He changed, he transformed the substance of water into wine. Now, what's the point of it? Why is this such a significant miracle to record? Well, the the sign points to this truth that the laws of nature itself, the creative laws of God, are under the control of Jesus Christ, and he can even supersede the laws of nature should he so choose. Jesus creates wine out of water. This points to his creative and transforming work. It reminds us what John says, through him all things have been made, and without him nothing has been made that has been made. The creative and the transforming power of Jesus. What's the second sign? An official son. John chapter 4, someone who worked in the royal palace, and he comes to Jesus. He travels to Jesus from the small town of Capernaum. He's left his son there because his son is dying. John makes it clear that, that his son was close to death, and he travels all the way to Cana, again, the second time in Cana. And if you, if you look on the map as the crow flies, that's 26 kilometers away. His son is dying. He's traveled 26 kilometers either on foot or on horseback or mule, and he comes to Jesus and he pleads with Jesus, you have to come back with me all the way to Capernaum because my son is close to death, and I've heard what you can do, and and, and I know that you can heal my son. Essentially, that's what he says. This official actually thought that Jesus had to be there physically in the room with his son in order to heal him. This man also thought that if Jesus didn't come, then his son would die, and he had no idea that Jesus' power goes beyond even death itself. And what did Jesus do? He simply spoke to the man and said, You may go. Your son will live. 26 kilometers away, the son is healed immediately. And the nobleman, the official, he finds that out when he's traveling back to Capernaum because some of his servants come out to greet him and tell him what has happened. And he understood that at the very moment that Jesus said, you may go, your son will live, was when the miracle happened. Listen, Jesus didn't lay his hands on the man. Jesus didn't administer some kind of a healing agent. He simply spoke. And the son was healed. Like God speaking in Genesis Let there be light. And what happened? There was light. This points to the truth that Jesus is the master of of space and distance. That there's nowhere in his creation where his word is not heard. There is nowhere in his creation where his word does not have an effectual power. That distance is no barrier to Jesus. That he has power over the things that threaten human life. Hallelujah. The third miracle was a paralyzed man, a lame man. John records this in chapter 5. 
He tells us that this man had been paralyzed now for 38 years. And at the end of the story, he says to the man after he's healed him, he says, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you, which helps us to think or causes us to think that perhaps he was paralyzed because of something he had done. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. And Jesus goes to the man and he asks him if he wants to get well. And Jesus simply says these words to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And the scripture says, at once he was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. Now, if, if, you, if you had healing powers, if a doctor has a power perhaps to restore life to lifeless legs, if a, if, if, if a doctor or a chiropractor or through therapy and, and all kinds of things, you can, you can take someone who, who hasn't walked for 38 years and eventually bring those muscles back. That would be a great thing, but it would take a lot of time. And here is a man whose legs have atrophied. In, in essence, his legs are dead. And Jesus brings about a complete restoration and rehabilitation of this man in an instant. At once, he got up, he picked up his mat, and he walked. Now, what's the point of that miraculous sign? Well, John then tells us that Jesus did this on a Sabbath day. And of course, you know what happened to the Jewish leaders every time Jesus did something on a Sabbath day. You know, some, sometimes I read the Bible and I go, no, no, Jesus, please don't do it on the Sabbath. It's just going to get you into trouble. But he did it on the Sabbath day. And they're all mad and angry at him. And Jesus made this comment. He said, my father is always at work to this very day, to this Sabbath day. God works on the Sabbath, essentially is what he's saying. And then he adds these words. And I too am working. I too am working. I am just like my Father. And then Jesus said, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son of Man gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. This man's legs were dead, and the Son of Man chose to give life to the man's legs because he and the Father are one. Then we come to miracle 4 and miracle 5. And I want to link these two. That is the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water because John clearly links the two. They're found in John chapter 6, and they're closely linked to each other. Now, the feeding of the 5,000 is a significant miracle of Jesus, and I say that because it's not just John who records it, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke record it as well. It is the only miracle that is recorded by all four of the gospel writers. So it was significant in their thinking. What does Jesus do? He, he, he multiplies the bread, he multiplies the fish, and he makes a statement concerning himself. He says, I am the bread of life. You see, the miracle that he does substantiates the claim that he makes. I am the bread of life. In other words, I am the satisfier of the hunger of every human heart. And then after the miracle happens, Jesus um, dis disciples go out onto the lake and they're trying to get to the other side and, and a storm comes up in the middle of the night and Jesus isn't with them in the boat and you know the story Jesus comes walking to them on the water and he says to them it is I do not be afraid Jesus comes into the boat 
the storm immediately subsides and immediately the boat is on the other side of the lake. An incredible miracle happens. I said that they're linked and they're linked because they're connected to each other because in the feeding of the 5,000 and in the walking on water, Jesus is, through the sign, is showing that he is the God of the Exodus because you go all the way back to Exodus and God gave bread out of heaven. It was called manna every day to his people. And God brought his people to the Red Sea and he parted the waters of the Red Sea. And now here is the one who says, it is I, I am. I am the one walking. Don't be afraid. These signs point to the fact that Jesus was affecting a new exodus, a greater exodus, a deliverance. He is the master of the waves. He is the Lord of the seas. He rescues us from the waves that threaten our lives. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but in Christian art, down through the years, the church has been depicted as a boat. And in the, in the boat, in the middle of the boat, is where the disciples were. And the middle part of a boat is called a nave. It's an old English word. And if you go into very old churches, they will refer to the place where we're meeting now, not as an auditorium or as a sanctuary, they will refer to it as the nave. The church building had a nave, just like the boat has a nave. And so early Christian artists saw in the boat a picture of the church. That Jesus is there in the, in the boat, in the nave with us. It is I, do not be afraid. In other words, he will never abandon his church. He will never abandon his people. And what happened? Jesus steps into the boat. Immediately they're on the other side of the lake. Jesus will bring us, he will carry us to the eternal shore that he has destined for us. And in these signs, Jesus shows he has power over his creation. He has power to defy the law of gravity itself. He has power to bring about our destinies. Now we come to number six, miracle number six, the blind man. We looked at that two weeks ago. When Jesus heals the blind man, it is prefaced by a statement that Jesus makes. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now to back up his claim, what does Jesus do? He is on his way out of the temple grounds and he sees this man who was born blind. Everyone knew who he was. He'd been there at the temple begging for years. And Jesus simply puts... He spits into the ground. He, 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 he puts enough of his spittle into the ground that he actually makes, makes clay, makes mud out of the dirt, and he wipes it on the man's eyes, and he tells him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam, and the man goes there, no doubt someone guiding him and directing him there. And he washes his eyes, and immediately he can see. I am the light of the world. And he opens someone's eyes who's, who's been in darkness for his whole life. This points to the fact that he can open our eyes too. He can help us to see. He can give to us the very meaning of life itself. And then we come to the final sign. And we looked at that last Sunday morning, and our, our children, along with Pastor Lee, I think illustrated that whole story for us in such a, a wonderful way. He raised Lazarus from the grave. And Pastor Lee referred to that as the climactic sign. The climactic sign. Because in that sign, Jesus showed that he has power over life and death itself. 
Now, when you think about it, he heals a lame man. The lame man's legs are dead. He heals a blind man. The blind man's eyes are dead. But in raising Lazarus from the grave, who'd been dead for four days, whose body was already deteriorating, decaying in the state of dissolution, Jesus not only gave life to just a portion of an individual's body or a small part of a body like an eye, he gave life to the totality of Lazarus' body and he raised him from the grave. When Jesus did his first sign, it says that his disciples saw what he did and they believed in him because they saw his glory. But here in the seventh sign, they... When, when Jesus spoke those words, Lazarus came come forth and Lazarus came out of the grave. They saw the glory of Jesus, as it were, in the full. This miracle tells us that, that Jesus' rule extends to our very bodies. That he has authority over our bodies. This points to the, the truth of his promise that, that, that he will have ultimately, in the end, renew all things. That there will be a great day of resurrection when the dead will come out of their graves, when they hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who come out will live. Remember Jesus' words? All authority is given to me in power in heaven and on earth. All power is given to me in heaven and on earth. Even the power of death and life. It was a climactic sign. Friends, it was a climactic sign for one other reason. It brought Jesus to his hour, his time. That's our next point. John tells us that the seven signs lead us to Jesus' hour. You see, after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the grave, it says in John 11, verse 53, which will go up on the screen, that something happened at that point. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Not Lazarus' life. They were, they, were, they were wanting to kill Lazarus again, too. But they plotted to take Jesus' life. They plotted to take Jesus' life. You see, these miraculous signs all led up to the final sign, which was the raising of Lazarus from the grave. And that, as it, as it were, was the trigger. That was the trigger that caused them to plot to take Jesus' life. They knew they had to get rid of Jesus. They had had enough. It was a climactic sign in that it was the very climax of his mission itself. Because when Jesus was finally put to death on the cross, his hour had finally come. This was his mission to die on the cross for our sins. Now, you remember what... Jesus said to his mother Mary at the first sign, we'll put that up on the screen. Remember she came to Jesus and said, can you, can you help here? Let's put it back on the screen, please. And Jesus said, can we go back? No, you're jumping ahead. Oh, you already know the verse. My hour, he said, has not yet come. Now, when we come to John chapter 17, Jesus is in the garden praying He's praying to his father. And when he prays, he prays specifically about his glory. My hour has not yet come is what he said to Mary. But now in John chapter 17, remember, the death of Lazarus or the raising of Lazarus leads into the final week of the life of Jesus. So from John 12 to John chapter 19, eight chapters in full, you've got the final week of Jesus. 
And it's all leading to the cross and ultimately the resurrection. And Jesus says in John 17, Father, my hour has come. The hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Next slide, please. Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Friends, the signs, the miraculous signs, revealed the glory of Jesus' person, who he is. He is the Messiah, the Son of God. The cross and the resurrection revealed the glory of Jesus' mission and work. Why did he come into the world? The Messiah came into the world to die on the cross for the sins of the world. He was sent to die. And on the cross, Jesus fulfilled the purpose of his mission. And in the cross then, we see the glory of Jesus Christ because this is the reason why he came. Number five, John gives us the reason for recording seven signs. Now, we've looked at the seven signs, and, and we could ask this question again, and that is, what is it, what's unique about these seven? Why did John specifically choose these seven? And I think the answer is this. These miraculous signs, these seven miraculous signs, prove two things about Jesus. They prove that he is the creator of all things. All of creation is under his power. He has complete power over it all. And secondly, he is the savior of the world. You think about each one of these signs. Each one of these signs shows that Jesus had power over creation. Each one of the signs was life-saving. It was life-giving. It was a picture of salvation in Jesus. They prove who Jesus is. He is the Messiah. These are written, verse 31, that you may believe that Jesus is, first thing, the Messiah, the Christ. Second thing, the Son of God. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the one who was promised. Isaiah, in chapter 29 and 35 of the prophecy that he gives, actually tells us what the Messiah would do when he came. In that day, the eyes of the blind will see. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened. Then the lame leap like a deer. Sounds like John chapter 5 to me. Sounds like John chapter 9. Sounds like the healing of the lame man. Sounds like the healing of the blind man. This was the prophecy of the Messiah. Do you remember? John was arrested. John the baptizer was arrested and thrown into jail. The scripture doesn't tell us how long he was there, but he was there long enough to go into a state of deep depression and doubt. Matthew tells us that John sent two of his disciples to Jesus because John had a question in his mind. And the question was, are you the one or should we look for another? Are you the Messiah? John was doubting. Do you remember what Jesus said? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, go back and report to John what you see, what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, 
the lame walk. Next slide, please. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Because in those words, we have the fulfillment of what Isaiah said. The lame walk, the blind can see, the dead are raised. Jesus didn't have to say, I am the Messiah. He just said, tell John this is what happened or is happening. And John knew immediately because John knew the prophecy of Isaiah. And so Jesus revealed his glory. The signs reveal the glory of the Lord Jesus. The purpose of the signs was to put the glory of Jesus on display. The purpose of these signs was to reveal the glory of God in no one else other than Jesus. Now the next thing this text tells us is that John invites you and I to believe. John invites us to believe. These are written, verse 31, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. We read this morning from Matthew chapter 16, uh, Lee read the passage to us where Jesus says, um, who do people say I am? And there was a lot of rumors going around about Jesus and the disciples were aware of what the people were saying. Who do people say I am? And so the disciples respond, well, well some say you're John, some say you're Elijah, or Jeremiah, you're, you're one of the, prof the prophets. And, 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 and they were right in a sense. But Jesus wasn't concerned so much about what everybody was saying. He narrowed it down, and he said, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? And you remember Peter's fam famous words? He spoke up, I think he spoke up on behalf of all of them. And he said, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood, that is a human being, has not revealed this to you. Simon, you didn't figure this out just because you have great intellectual powers, just because you're smarter than anyone else. It is my Father in heaven who revealed this to you. One of the ways the Father used to reveal that to Peter was through the miraculous signs. And then we read the story about Thomas. Remember Thomas? I won't believe I won't believe until I can see his hands and, 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 and put my fingers into this, the hole in his side and the, hole, the holes in his hands. And then Jesus appeared to him. And Simon, or Thomas said, my Lord and my God, and he worshiped Jesus. And Jesus said to him, interesting words, because you have seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Friends, whether it's the story of Simon Peter or whether it's the story of Thomas, in both cases, when they finally believed and confessed that they believed, Jesus pronounced a blessing on them. See that? Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Thomas, you're blessed. You've seen me, but more blessed are those who have not seen me. A blessing came immediately when they believed. Now, verse 31 invites you. Verse 31 invites you to believe. It invites me to believe. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? He invites you to believe. Now, what does it mean to, to believe? 
See, this is where, this is where so many mistakes are made. And churches are filled with people who believe, but they don't believe. Did you catch what I said? They believe, but they don't believe. What, what does it mean that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God? Some people think, well, well, I've always believed. Ever since I was a baby, I've always believed because they grew up in the church. Friends, listen. True faith, true believing has a starting point. It always has a starting point. It's not something that is assimilated because you grew up in the church. It's, it doesn't happen to you through a process of osmosis. Because mom and dad believe and my brother and sis, sister believe, I believe. No, no. It's not, not how it happens. It, it has a starting point. There is a moment in time in which faith happens. True belief takes place. It is a decision. A decision that is actually made. It's a decision that involves all of your faculties. It involves your head because you have to reason this through. But it also involves your heart because you need to be pulled to Jesus by your heart. You understand what I'm saying? It involves your will because you have to make a decision to believe in Jesus. Let me put it in another way. To believe involves, number one, understanding who Jesus is. Lots of people in churches understand who Jesus is. Some of you here understand who Jesus is. I haven't said anything new to you today that you didn't already believe because you, you have an, an intellectual grasp of who Jesus is. So there has to be an understanding of who Jesus is, but that's not enough. There must also be a confession that he is true. He is true. He really is the Messiah. He really is the Son of God. There has to be also a trust in Him. It's an act of faith by which you place your trust in Him. To believe isn't just intellectual assent. To believe is to trust. When a, when a man says to his wife, I believe in you, and she says to him, I believe in you, that means I trust you with all of my heart. It means a turning to him. In other words, when you truly believe, you're turning away from one thing to embrace another. You're turning away from your past life. You're turning away from, from the things that have occupied your, your whole life and, and, have, and have gripped your heart up to that point in time. The things that you live for, and now you're embracing him because you're going to live for him. It's an act of embrace. It's an act of faith. Some of you are convinced that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, but you're still not really believing. And you must take Christ. You must receive Christ. You must embrace Christ. We're going to put a scripture verse up on the screen. It comes from the Apostle John. It's 1 John chapter 5. Another letter that John wrote. Look at these words. They're so important. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Let's just stop there. Where is this life? Where is eternal life? It's in Jesus, right? 
The life is in his son. The life is in his son. So I'm going to take this here. I hope I don't break it. My Bible is Jesus, and this is eternal life. Where is eternal life? Where is it? It's in his son. It's in his son. It's, it's in Jesus. That's what the verse is saying. Notice the next line. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. Now notice he doesn't use the word believe there. Why? He uses the word of having, of possessing, of embracing. You see that? Why? Because that's what believing is. Believing is when you take Jesus. So if, if this thing was still in my Bible, eternal life is here, and, and my Bible is Jesus, he who has the Son, what does he have? Life. But if you don't have the Son of God, what don't you have? You don't have life. In other words, you must make a decision. You must make a decision to receive him. You must make a decision to believe in him. And the final thing that John tells us is this. The seventh thing is that John promises eternal life to all who believe. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Meaning eternal life, an imperishable life, an indestructible life, a different quality of life. Eternal life isn't just something that you get as a believer when you die. Eternal life is something that you possess now. I have eternal life now. I've had eternal life for 50 years this summer. When I opened my heart and I received Jesus, I took Jesus. I embraced Jesus and I said, Jesus, you're mine. And I've had eternal life from that day until now. It's a quality of life. It's an abundance of life. It's a, it's a newness of life. It's a life of knowing God. And I will have that, the Bible tells me, for all eternity. Let me say one other thing about these signs. And then I'm going to ask you to make a decision this morning. What I want you to understand is this. In each one of these signs, Jesus did for people what they could not do for themselves. They couldn't do it. They couldn't buy enough wine at a wedding when the wedding was already underway to make it happen. The official couldn't, couldn't heal his son in spite of the fact that he was a royal official, no doubt a wealthy man. His money couldn't, couldn't change the circumstances at all. Only Jesus could. The lame man couldn't change his condition. He tried over and over and over again to get into the pool that somehow its curative powers might heal him and he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. The blind man, he, he couldn't change his situation at all. And, 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 and the feeding of the 5,000 and walking on water, the disciples couldn't save themselves out there in the middle of the sea. And the disciples could have never provided all that bread for all those people. Each one of the signs, Jesus did what the people could not do. Lazarus couldn't raise himself out of the grave. The point I'm trying to make is this. You can't get this life. You can't get eternal life on your own. You can't get this eternal life by 
trying. You, you can't change yourself. You can't transform yourself. You can't make yourself holy. You can't get rid of your sin on your own. And listen, it's your sin, your rebellion, your pride, your, 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 your leaving God out of your life. It is that sin which has separated you from God and from eternal life. It's only Jesus who can make the connection for you. And so only Jesus can do for you what you really need. Only Jesus can save you and give you eternal life. What's interesting in, this, in each one of these stories is that people either came to Jesus to get what they needed or Jesus came to them to give them what they needed. The bottom line is this. You have to come in an act of faith to Jesus Christ. So I'm going to do something this morning. We're going to do something today that, if I, can I call it old-fashioned? <laughs> in other words, we haven't done it in a while. But it's something that used to happen a lot in, church, in churches. And that is, I'm going to invite you to come to the front if you would like to believe today in Jesus. Listen, you have a decision to make. Some of you uh, are, are trusting in the faith of others. You have to have your own faith in Christ. You, you need to believe yourself. You need to make a decision for Jesus. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you that opportunity this morning. I'm just going to, we're going we're gonna to stand in a moment, and when we stand, we're going to sing. And as we're singing, if you would like to come today and believe in Christ, then just asking you to get out of your seat and come to the front. Some of our pastors will be here, receive you, we'll have prayer with you. There'll be someone here to counsel you, pray with you. But today you need to make your decision. You can't, you can't keep avoiding this. Some of you are thinking, I, I got to have more knowledge first. I, I got to know, listen, all you have to know is that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He died on the cross for you. That's all you need to know. And if you believe that with all your heart, then you can have eternal life today. So don't keep waiting for something else to happen. Some more knowledge to be given to you. You need to believe. Would you stand, please? Let me say a few more words. Some may say, wow, John, this is pretty high pressured. I don't, I'm not trying to pressure any of you today, but I do hope that God the Holy Spirit will pressure your heart. And there have been occasions, and I've experienced this in meetings before, and I've had many people share this with me before, that in a meeting similar to this, whether it was a number of years ago, even 20, 30 years back, and in a moment like, like this, people felt an incredible amount of pressure. And at first, pe people think it's the guy up at the front. He's putting the pressure on with his words. He's trying to pressure you. That's not the case at all. People become aware at a time like this that the pressure is actually coming from God. And God is saying, it's time for you to come to my son and to believe in him. And so if you feel that pressure today, it would be wonderful if you came to the front. This is not an embarrassing moment. Many of us have done this before. You may be here with a friend and you're reluctant to come. Your friend, would, I'm sure, would be willing to come with you today. So as we sing this song, we're just simply asking you if you would like to make that decision today to come to Christ, that you come. Some of you have struggled with doubt for a long period of time. You're lacking assurance. You're not sure. Listen. If you're not sure that you have eternal life in Christ, 
then make sure today and seal this commitment today. Make the decision today. God will be pleased and you will be blessed. As we're singing, feel free to come, please.